Um, I love the passages that Dr. John read today. I love those passages that talk about um, where, where God uses His prophets to mock idol worship. Um, and it, it is mocked all through Scripture, especially in the prophets. Um, worshiping other gods is, is forbidden and dangerous in a lot of ways, and God talks about that. But when He cuts over to idols, it's less about the danger of idols and more just about the rank stupidity of worshiping idols that He seems to be offended by. He's like, didn't, didn't, didn't you make that? Didn't you hire someone to make that? And now you're worshiping that. Like, how? Or even in, the, in another passage in Isaiah when he talks about, you just used half of that wood to cook your stew and use the other half to worship. What, how does that make any sense? Anyway, that's, I think God's kind of scratching his head at us, going like, what are y'all thinking? So, I, but, but keep in mind, what, what he's saying is, if you make something with your own hands and then you worship it, that's foolish. Well, now that doesn't quite sound so impersonal, does it? We do a little bit of that. Um, we make things with our own hands and then worship them. We create cultures and worship them. We create our own philosophies and worship them. We create our own, you know, smartphones and worship them. Like that's a, whatever that is, it's, it's a good teaching. Um, I want to dive into this God who reveals, reveals mysteries. So Many of you, um, you've been here and you've watched me struggle to put the pieces together of this after, <laughs> Sunday after Sunday. Speaking of pride, someone this week sent me a text and was like, that was a great, um, that was a great study, like an example of humility there as you were unable to get. I was like, That's, yeah, that was my whole point. Um, so the idea would be that, that in the Babylonian mind, it's our natural mindset, and I grew up with the mindset that I thought that Nebuchadnezzar asked Jesus into his heart and then started going to VBS. And that's, um, that's, that would not be an accurate understanding what you would have is him, him beginning to come into an understanding of this God of the Jewish people, who, who he calls the Most High God, because that's the name that Daniel gives to the God of the Jewish people, is the Most High God. And Nebuchadnezzar begins to understand what that means, that this God has authority over the other gods. And that's impressive. Obviously, that's always going to be impressive to a pagan. Power is what paganism is all about. And so as he begins to understand who this God is, so I picture a plaque, all the other gods would have had an idol probably in the pantheon of Babylon. But since Yahweh doesn't have an idol, you probably would have had a plaque. And so I had a plaque made that might have been like the idea. And then as we see Nebuchadnezzar learn things about this God, they're going to add little attachments to the bottom. This is what I'm learning about him. And we get three very specific times when Nebuchadnezzar proclaims something. In fact, in, in, I think in all three cases, I think about it, all three cases legally proclaims it. Like, has it put in writing legally that this is about this God? One is, he's the reveal of mysteries. That comes from when Daniel's able to reveal his dream to him. Again, this is a God we serve, and this is a God we kind of want to serve, but it's also a God we kind of don't want to serve. We like having mysteries revealed to us if it's the mysteries we want revealed. A lot of times the mysteries about ourselves aren't the ones we want revealed, but especially as the Holy Spirit works in us, that's part of what teaches us humility. Chad and I were just talking um, before the service about, you know, how often I will use the phrase, have you, have you ever met you? When I'm talking about who we are and, and it, like the idea that we would trust in ourselves for salvation is ridiculous. That's, I mean, have you ever met you is the idea like that's what are you thinking? And well, that's a mystery that's painful to have revealed to us is our own shortcomings and imperfections. Then there's um, the rescuer of his servants. This is a God who saves and no one can save like this God. It's an amazing attribute of the God that Nebuchadnezzar comes to know through Daniel is no one saves like this. 
This is a God who saves when no one else could save, when no one, no God could save, when no one could save, this God saves. And, and again, we're comfortable with that, but we're uncomfortable with what John talked about a minute ago, that we somehow want it to be about our merit. It is intriguing that every heresy, every heretical view of Christianity that moves away from biblical Christianity, one of the things you can count on that they will change is that it will become meritorious. Humans will have merit that influences whether God saves us. Um, because we don't like the idea that God has to save us despite ourselves, or God has to save us um, without being impressed by us. That's uncomfortable to us. Um, uh, Paul and Lance are going on sabbatical soon, and we always talk about how one of the great effects of going on sabbatical is that you go away for six weeks, and Lord willing, everything goes okay. And that's a scary feeling. It's a little scary when you go away and you're gone and everything's fine without you because it turns out God doesn't need our help rescuing and doing the work He does. He gives us the opportunity to be involved, but it's a, it's a little bit of a scary thing to go away and go, wow, I really assumed things would fall apart without me, and it didn't. That's uncomfortable to me, right? Then this last one, the, reveal, the, the humbler of the proud, is the one that Nebuchadnezzar learns and that we just talked about, and now we're diving into a story that's going to show, by the way, all of these traits of God and who He is over this chapter, that these are going to be lived out. In fact, in the next two chapters, we're going to see this twice, these three traits revealed in Yahweh. And, and I kind of laugh about it. I'm like, I, I wrote down in my notes, but do we want God to be a humbler of the proud? Is this a trait that we want God to have? And, and I think that the kind of knee-jerk um, answer that we would give as a church full of people who are aware of our own failures, would be to say, not really. But honestly, I then wrote, sure, I want God to be a humbler of a proud. I have a whole list of proud people that I want Him to humble, right? <laughs> Don't you? Like, I've got a whole list of proud people that I'm like, God, here's, if you want some ideas for who the type people you need to humble, man, I've, I've met a bunch of them. So I'd love for you to get on these, like run through. And so I think we're uncomfortable with the fact that that's still us. The worship of self, the corrupt understanding of the identity and role of self is pride. And the corrupt understanding of the identity and role of God. Those two together, are a corrupt understanding of ourselves and of God is what, is what creates pride. The opposite of pride is humble, but if you listen to the podcast this week, we spend a whole podcast talking about this, and <laughs> is the idea of pride. But I think the cure for pride is teachable. The opposite is humble. The cure is teachable. We know our way is best, and we know that we are right. And what's funny is even when I wrote that, I know my way is best, is the immediate thought I had like, but, but sometimes my way is best, right? But what about when my way is best? And it's immediate reaction to my brain is to automatically go like, well, but sometimes it is right. And I, I feel the need to defend that so quickly, even inside my own head. And none of y'all are there to fight with me about that. And yet I'm still fighting with someone about that question. But, but, and because we know we're right, we don't listen well. Um, uh, Mark is going to be leading an organization that's, that's very multi-ethnic um, this next year at DBU. And so he was looking for some leadership advice. So I encouraged him to meet with um, Stephen Young, the African-American pastor who we all love, and, and, and to get some time with him. He's a great leader and a strong leader and and one of the things to learn was, how do you engage with this? And Stephen's advice to him was some version of listen. Listen intentionally. Listen aggressively. What was the word he used? Do you remember? 
It was listen assertively. It was one of those. Listen loudly. That's what it was. That was great. Listen loudly. And I really think that's a powerful, that's part of what we need to be doing is learning to do that. And pride is what keeps us from doing it. I know that I'm doing things correctly. I know that my way, my wife's way is wrong. My kid's way is wrong. My husband's way are wrong. And, and they, others will tell me that my way is out of line or unloving or uncaring. But, but you know what the truth is? I know my way is right. That's, that's an unteachable spirit. And that's how you end up in a role like Belshazzar's here. Are we teachable, influenceable, persuadable? I've had people, especially in the atheist movement, tell me that they can't change what they believe. That's a, that's a common thing now. Well, I, that's what I believe, and I can't change what I believe. Um, I don't buy that. And here, what I mean is, I'm assuming that means that they are not persuaded. They're not open to being persuaded. Um, and and I get the conversation, and I understand what they mean. But are, are we open to being persuaded? Do we have a hard heart? A heart made of stone that's not malleable, not teachable, but the living heart is. It's humble in its ability and willingness to mold and change and learn. When teachable people are convinced of something, because obviously teachable people can be convinced of something, Jesus is teachable and convinced, his disciples often are teachable and convinced, (laughs) others are, but you can tell that they're that they're convinced, but it's not based on pride. Their conviction isn't rooted in their own pride. It's not rooted in their own need to be right. They can rest gently in their own confidence. Um, There is truth, absolute, objective, external truth. That exists, but we have proven ourselves to be pretty miserable, certainly less than perfect at recognizing, understanding, and living by it. As a race, we have. And so for us to be able to be confident and humble, sure and teachable. And it really comes down to what what was being said earlier, what John said earlier. He holds us. It's not us holding him. It's, it's, it's not an idol that we hold. He holds us. And so we get to be teachable and, and yet humble. And we get to be confident and yet gentle in that confidence. Um, it's a powerful place to be as a Christian um, as we begin to rest in that, that we get to be humble and teachable, and yet because of who He is, we get to rest in the confidence and sureness of Him. It's a, it's a wonderful place. It's not easy on us as humans, but it is wonderful. So we start an account of a man who is as proud as his ancestors were, but he doesn't, he doesn't seem to be as teachable as his ancestor was. Um, before we get to that, I want to do a history lesson. So for those of you who are textual analyst types or, or those who love apologetics the most or just someone who is fascinated by history, you're going to dig the first part of this sermon. Um, and so I always want to start by making sure people understand this. As Christians, this is tough for us sometimes, especially if we grew up in traditional churches. Um, so the analogy I use to help us understand this, if I, if I come home and I find a love letter from my wife, okay, and she's left, uh, you, some of you have heard this a thousand times, I'm sorry, but for those who haven't. And I come on to find a love letter from my wife. Okay, it's all pretty with calligraphy and everything. I think I have a picture of love letter from my wife. See, look at that. So it's beautiful. And so I'm going, you know, I'm trying to understand how to correctly interpret this love letter from my wife. And I'm saying, what does, what does oatmeal say about her love for me? Like the, the coconut water. What exactly is, is her purpose in commenting on that about her love for me? Well, pretty much every interpretation that I make about my wife's love for me from this love letter is going to be wrong. Why? Because it's not a love letter. There you go. See, it's not that hard. 
It's not a love letter. It's the wrong, the, the wrong type of literature that I'm trying to interpret here. If I understand this as a grocery, aside from the fact that I'm going to be in trouble when I didn't go to the grocery store and get these things on the grocery list, right? And so there's a, there's a multiplication effect of error, and we need to know what type of language we're reading even in the Bible, what type of literature we're reading even in the Bible. And so if you take something from the Bible that is meant to be, that is meant to be um, a parable, and you treat it as historical, you're going to make some terrible interpretations, if you try to read a book of wisdom like Proverbs and treat it as a book of promises, you're going to get in a lot of trouble because you're going to take God as promising things He's not promising. And so it's important that we are able to engage with this. And there's whole swaths of Scripture that we actually don't know exactly what form of literature we're reading. We don't always know. And so we have to be humble in our understanding of that. Well, when we look at something like the book of Daniel, it's our natural temptation to, to treat it as just a history textbook. And it clearly isn't. It's not just a history textbook. A history textbook would focus on different things. So, for example, here's a genealogy of leaders um, of, uh, from ba- of Babylon. Now, so if you go through this, and you go through the Bible, and you go, okay, we were just in chapter 4 with Nebuchadnezzar, right here, right, Nebuchadnezzar. And now, we've gone to chapter 5, and in chapter 5, we're going to learn about Belshazzar. This person down here. Now, is that how a history text would handle that? Would it go, eh, one, two, three, four, five, the fifth ruler after Nebuchadnezzar? That's where we're going to jump to him. No. And there's a huge coup. The family makes a huge coup right here against Nebuchadnezzar's leadership. There's a big coup against the leaders, against Nebuchadnezzar's male counterparts, and another family who's married in takes over the leadership. That seems important, if it's a historical text it is. But the the book of Daniel is not merely history. What we have in Daniel is we have this historical, biographical, prophetic, apocryphal narrative. It's got all of it, and it's all mixed together. That's what makes Daniel such a challenge sometimes. But we've had several major battles We've had governmental change. All those things have happened in between. And a textbook, a history text, would surely be making a big deal out of that. This is not a historical textbook, so it doesn't need to do that. This account is teaching us certain things that we're supposed to learn about the way God works and the way God engaged in the kingdom of Babylon, etc. So let's talk history. In chapter 5, verse 1, we get introduced to a person named King Belshazzar. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the household. Okay, so back to the genealogy, or forward to the genealogy, how you have it set up up there. So we had Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has a son who goes by the name Evil Merodach. Pretty cool, huh? Okay, so don't get weirded out by that. Actually, Paul, you got your mic on? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Paul, Paul explained, Paul did some research and learned about this name here. Where's this come from? Yeah, so it's actually, we get evil Merodach in our English Bible at the end of Second Kings, where it's listed there, and it's actually just the Romanized or the transliteration in English of the Hebrew name, uh, and the Hebrew name is a transliteration of the Aramaic name, the Royal Aramaic name. So it's actually Amel Merodach in Aramaic, which means man of Merodach. So how fitting it is that man transliterates into evil. Evil, Yes. <laughs> Man transliterates into evil here. So it's a multiple transliterations that gave, eventually get you to this name. He's not much of a king, as you can tell, less than two years 
he's in charge. Then you have a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. Some of this is presumed, by the way. It's not certain how some of this plays out. But you have a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar who, who is married to becomes the next king. And they have a child. And this child, you can see, he, he doesn't last long. None of these are very long-lasting. And then you get this guy, Nabonidus, or Nabonidus. And again, who knows? I'll probably say Nabonidus because that's how I was taught. That may be wrong, but that's what I was taught. And so Nabonidus marries one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters. <coughs> and he is the ruler here, um, here for a while. We've jumped way ahead between chapter 4 and chapter 5, at least 30 years. Um, Belshazzar is not a well-known person historically. In fact... Um, if, when you look up art for Belshazzar all through the medieval era and stuff, um, you get these. You get these kind of pictures when you look at Belshazzar. There's one. Another one. There's one. One more. There's Rembrandt. I think it's Rembrandt. You know what, you know what Belshazzar is famous for? Daniel chapter 5. That's it. That's what he's famous for. In fact, he didn't appear in histories except Daniel chapter 5. He's nowhere around. For a long time, Belshazzar was considered to be a fictional character. So he's the son of, of Nabonidus. Go back to the genealogy one more time. So notice Nabonidus rules 556 to 539, but look at the dates on Belshazzar. His overlap with Nabonidus. Well, what's that about? So it's presumed that Demodus' wife was a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, and therefore Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar by his mother's side. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be referred to <coughs> multiple times in chapter 5 as, as Belshazzar's father, or Belshazzar as Nebuchadnezzar's son. That's not an error. That's, that's common usage. It's common to refer to like the hierarchy like that, the lineage being father and son, even if there's a gap in the generation there and that kind of stuff. That's, that's normal. Belshazzar was literally considered to be a fictional character for a very long time because Belshazzar appeared, not only did Belshazzar appear nowhere in any history that we have, any meaningful history that we had, his name did not appear, but every time the kings of Babylon were listed, Nabonidus was listed last and there was no one after him. And so now you've, got, now you've got the Bible, Daniel chapter 5, throwing out this character, Belshazzar, as a king who obviously never existed. There's only this many kings. It ends with Nabonidus. That's it. He's the last king of Babylon. And so what, what's up with this Belshazzar character? Well, clearly he's fictional so that we could tell a cool story in the Bible about Daniel, and there's no such person. Problem. The, the Nabonidus cylinder was found. I think we have a picture of the Nabonidus cylinder. That's Nabonidus. Got one more. There we go. The Nabonidus cylinder was found. And the Nabonidus similar, cylinder, in 1854, he was finally, we find a reference to Belshazzar. <gasps> what? We find a guy named Belshazzar, and it turns out Belshazzar is the son of Nabonidus. So he, the Nabonidus cylinder mentions Belshazzar. The name Belshazzar means Bel. If you remember, that's one of the nicknames for Marduk, the leader, the king. Bel protects the king. In the early 1900s, Nabonidus and Belshazzar, were, we thought well, they were found more things. They were invoked together in an oath, which is odd because that means they're sharing some kind of royal position. This makes Nabonidus the first man in the kingdom and Belshazzar the second. In fact, it was learned that Nabonidus 
who was, by the way, just for those of you who like history, it turns out maybe 70 years old at this time and a monotheist. That he was probably someone, it seems like he was someone who had decided to serve only one God. And there's a lack of clarity in all of this stuff, but it, was, it turns out that may be the case. But Babylon was facing serious problems. They had become overpopulated, the city had, there was disease, a struggling economy, and this guy named Cyrus, who's running around the world conquering Babylonian strongholds, and no one seems to be able to stop him. And remember, what, what is the city of Babylon filled with? What, who have they filled their city capital with? Remember? Forced importees. People who they captured in other nations and brought to Babylon. Well, it seems likely that Cyrus was getting the word out to all these forced importees, if I take over, I'll send you home. I'll let you go home if, you, if I take over. And so some of Babylonian cities, apparently, the, when, the, when Cyrus showed up with his armies, he found open gates. Because the people inside had decided, no, we... We think you'd be a better choice. Cyrus the Persian is coming in. In 539 B.C., the Babylonian army is defeated, probably being led by Nabonidus, or Nabonidus outside of the city. So we know that they faced the Persian army outside of the city. They were defeated. Um, Nabonidus had already moved his capital, his own seat of rule. The capital was Babylon. had moved his seat of rule to a different city. Don't know why. And he had left Belshazzar in charge of the city of Babylon, making him effectively the king of Babylon. Now, he's not called King Belshazzar in the histories, although one historian refers to a king ruling Babylon when the Persians came in, <coughs> which probably was, um, probably was Belshazzar. Anyway, here's what we have. In 539, the Babylonian army is defeated. The Persian army shows up. Two days later, the city of Babylon falls. At that time, Belshazzar would have been in charge of the city. Um, Herodotus, the historian, says that a huge religious party was going on, and the Persians snuck in. We'll talk more about in detail how they did that. The Persians snuck in. Maybe the gates were opened for them. Maybe there's another way that Herodotus claims that he says the way it happened. So the argument, again, is that since the prophecies... Now, understand, (coughs) the prophecies of Daniel are way too accurate. Way too accurate. This is a worldview question. If you come to the book of Daniel and you believe there are miracles, if you believe there's a God, and that that God could tell someone what was going to happen in the future, then you have absolutely no reason except to accept Daniel's date in the 600 B.C. In fact, there's lots of reasons to think that it was written around that time. Lots of reasons. But there is one really good reason to think it wasn't written in the 600s, and that is that many of the things prophesied in Daniel happen after the 600s, and they're really accurate. For that reason... And almost for that reason alone, not entirely, but almost for that reason alone, secular historians say, well, obviously it wasn't written in the 600s. It must have been written near 100, 200 B.C. And that it was written as a piece of propaganda in order to encourage the Jewish people to fight against the Greeks at the time. 
That's, that's what a lot of secular historians, if you look at it, that's what they'll say about the book of Daniel. It was written about 150 to 200 B.C., and it was written as propaganda to encourage the Jewish people to fight the Greeks. A couple problems with that. One is, within a hundred years of that, the Jewish people were treating Daniel as Scripture. So that, that would be like, well, I don't know, Lord of the Rings, written close to a hundred years ago now. And us as Christians going, yeah, we're going to start treating that as Scripture. Because, it's, I mean, it's good, right? I mean, we can all agree, it's good. And it's written by a Christian, and it's got a lot of good stuff in it. It's very encouraging, right? It's uplifting. There's a lot of Christology in it, <clears throat> a lot of references to, to Christian thinking. Yeah, I think we ought to just add that to the Bible. It's been 100 years. We can just add that in, right? It's not quite 100 years, but maybe, maybe Pilgrim's Progress would be a better example. We go, Pilgrim's Progress, that's really good. That's some great teaching. Let's just add that into Scripture. How quick do you think the Jewish people were at that time to just add things to Scripture? Yet not. They weren't very quick. And so you end up with some, some, one, that's a huge challenge that we've got to accept that within about 100 years the Jewish people took something that they knew to be propaganda written at their time, and within 100 to 150 years they were now treating it as Scripture. That's a huge hurdle to, for the his, secular historians to get past. The second one is stuff like this. That it wasn't until the 1800s that we knew there was this guy named Belshazzar, but whoever wrote Daniel knew all about Belshazzar. Probably they didn't know about Belshazzar in the 100 A.D. time period. That was probably lost to them. And so it's unlikely. What you have is either Daniel, as I've said before, it's Daniel either supernaturally knows the future or he supernaturally knows the past. You're stuck kind of with either one. Either way, there's a miracle involved in the book of Daniel. He either supernaturally knows the future or he supernaturally knows the past. It's a, it's a, there are a lot of good reasons to think this book was written when it claims to be from. Instead, what we get is this brief insight into the workings of ancient Babylon and ancient Persia through Daniel. And while it isn't a history text, it has brilliant historical insight that essentially was lost to mankind for several thousand years, a couple thousand years. This is a gift to us. Now, there is also very deep, still personal and spiritual lessons to learn as we identify with the own, our own whiny child in the flesh, as we talked about. And if you want a whiny child in the flesh, look no further than Belshazzar. Um, even historians, the historians who did write about Belshazzar later, were not kind to him. He's kind of seen this way as a whiny, weak person. So back to the passage, Belshazzar, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drunk wine in front of the thousand. Another historian from that, near that era, a few hundred years later, Xenophon, refers to the son of the Babylonian king, whom he calls a king, now we now know that name would be Belshazzar, that he reigned in Babylon when Cyrus was preparing his army to advance. Xenophon doesn't give his name, but calls him king over and over again and says he was slain when Babylon fell to the army of Cyrus. Xenophon and Herodotus, two of the only historians who wrote about this, said the combined Median and Persian army entered the city via a channel of the Euphrates River. We'll talk about that in the next few weeks. But both also said that the city was completely unprepared because a great festival was being observed at the time, just like Daniel 5 indicates. Belshazzar, verse 2, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem had be brought, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. 
<clears throat> then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So Belshazzar taste-tested the wine, found it that he liked it so much that he commanded, this, you know what, this is too special. This wine's too good for us to be drinking out of the normal cups. So he decides to have a big old party, probably a planned annual festival that he decides to hold. And this is so good that we need to have specialized, we're going to use the best cups we can find. And those best cups are the gold and silver cups that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem many years before. No one really knows what's going on here. Was he completely unaware that the Persians had shown up? That's possible. Is it, did he know they were out there digging a channel? He may not have known it. If he did know it, was it bravado? Was this, was this playing, playing the, the band playing as the Titanic sank? Was this just, we're going we're gonna to go out with a, you know, a big blowout? Like what is, who, who knows what was going on? Um, it was likely that Cyrus and his generals knew about this party and took advantage of it. But just consider the lack of basic propriety here. This is one of the things that struck me. We live in, a, in an era of, a, of an utter lack of propriety. One of the reasons I love teaching young people poker is because poker is one of the few things left in our culture today that has propriety. There's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. It's like serving, we don't ever, we don't ever do this at meals anymore, but it's like being at a fine dinner. It's like, no, no, don't put your silverware like that. No, no, don't use that fork. No, don't use that glass. Like, there's a right way and a wrong way. And we don't have a lot of that left. And so it's like, I love that you go, listen, you cut the cards this direction 100% of the time. You always cut it this way. Do it this way every time. Don't touch that. You're not allowed to touch that. In the Old West, they'd have shot you for touching that, right? Don't touch that. And so there's, a, there's, there's just a basic lack of propriety. And in this account, we see this. The people of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, respected the gods of other peoples, and they weren't dismissive of them. And, and yet here we have this. Listen, listen to this. This is from Daniel 1 that tells us about this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, which is, that's Babylon, to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And just one of the things that strikes me about this story that always bugged me it's not, it's, I don't know that it's a huge teachable moment. It just bugged me that even if he doesn't respect the God of the Jews, that he doesn't have enough respect for the fact that other people respect the God of the Jews. I mean, I started thinking about like how, uh, how much it bugs me when, when, another, when the, a religious movement in the world starts destroying the religious monuments of another religion, and I don't believe in either one of these religions. And I'm still like, stop blowing up Buddhist temples. Like, I'm not a Buddhist. I don't believe Buddhism is accurate. I think it's got all kinds of errors, but I'm also like, hey, don't, don't knock that down. That's not nice. Like, there's just a propriety here that I, I don't know what that's about. I don't know what if it's just a thing I was taught. <laughs> like, I don't know where that comes from. But on top of everything else, I'm bugged by just his utter lack of just respect. And that's part of what, this is just a lack of respect and hospitality and all those kind of things. I don't know. This is important to somebody else. We respect things that we even we don't agree with. And maybe even more so things that we don't agree with is, is part of our witness anyway. It, we respect things with power for sure. Listen, listen to what the, the, uh, uh, the letter from Jude to Christians, he says in Jude, there's only one chapter, but in verses 9 and 10, 
When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they don't understand, and they're destroying all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Even the archangel Michael respects the power of Satan. Even he isn't flippant about Satan. If anyone deserves disrespect and flippancy, you would think it would be Satan, but instead you have the archangel Michael going, listen, I respect his power. I'm going to call upon the name of the Lord when I face this guy, not my power. And if anybody could, Michael could. And yet, I just, I just think there's something to this. There's a respect here that's missing. So using, it also struck me that in this passage, they make it clear that using cups of gold and silver to honor God's of gold and silver and brass and iron and wood and stone. Again, you, see, you feel the kind of mockery of the idols. Oh, we're going to honor an, an idol made out of wood with a cup made out of gold from the temple of the Most High God. Like, it's just the level of insult keeps expanding. Verse 5, Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. One, the writer wants us to know, Belshazzar is the eyewitness to this event. He sees this happen himself. It was opposite the lampstand. Many of the commentaries pointed out, which means they could see it. Right there. I mean, again, it's it. The lampstand's there. I also wonder if perhaps one of the things that was taken from the temple was a menorah. Maybe the menorah. Maybe the lampstand is the one that God that, that, that Belshazzar has foolishly brought to the party that represents the sevenfold spirit of Almighty God. And it's no wonder that a hand shows up and begins to write. Like the, the, if it's that level of challenge, like, I mean, that's just spitting in the face of God. Was this the lampstand? I don't know, but uh, maybe it had been brought in Jerusalem. It is later, by the way. We'll, look, we'll study that in, in, during Daniel. Verse 6, then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him and his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. And the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation and King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. We go back to this. Belshazzar has a mystery. His name, having to do with Baal saving the king, we're going to see that. He, he's, he's looking around for anybody. Why doesn't, Nebuchadnezzar, why doesn't Belshazzar ask Baal to answer this question? Or ask Marduk to answer this question for him? Well, he kind of does. He gets together all the priests and all these people. Um, it's kind of the... Um, <coughs> this is the same crowd we always see, right? They show up, and once again, I don't know why they don't fire these people. It's, I, when I read this, I'm always like, these guys are no help at all. They never seem to be any help. No one you need them the most, they show up. In defiance, he had picked a fight with God, and God responded. So I don't know if, Nebuch I don't know if Belshazzar was drunk, but he's sober now because a hand just showed up and started writing on the wall, and I'm guessing that has a pretty sobering effect on somebody. He picked a fight with God. Well, it's, it's easy to pick a fight with God when God doesn't fight back. He's picked a fight with God, and God responds. 
the minute that it happens, even he understands what's happening. He probably had even taken, by the way, not just the Jewish vessels, but the vessels from all kinds of other religions. And so here we probably have Belshazzar who has no idea which God he's offended. He's kind of an idiot. His knees go weak and the color drains from his face. He is terrified. His body begins to fade. He's on the verge of passing out. He calls for all the normal suspects to come read what the hand has written. He promises them royal levels of appreciation, purple clothes, chains of gold, and she'll be the third. By the way, does that make sense now? Isn't it interesting that, it, that, that that's hundreds of years ago that Daniel either supernaturally knew from the year 100, knew to call that, that what, what Belshazzar would say would be third in the kingdom? Why not second in the kingdom? Did you ever wonder that when you were a kid? I did. Why not second in the kingdom? Why third? Who's second? Well, now you know. Nabonidus is first. Belshazzar is second. He can only promise third. Again, that's pretty amazing. Uh, okay, so I'll tell you a quick story. Um, many, many years ago, a friend of mine named Travis Black invited me to come speak at his church in Cairo, Egypt, not Cairo, Texas. Um, I'm pretty sure there's a Cairo, te- I'm sure there's a Cairo, Texas. There's an everything, <laughs> Texas. Um, and, so, and so he invited me to go speak there. And so he, he said, hey, when you get off the airplane, you know, just walk and somebody's going to meet you. You'll see somebody with a name a placard to stop you because you don't want to try to go through Cairo airport on your own. And I was like, all right. I mean, I've been through lots of airports. And he was like, yeah, no, you don't want to try to. So I get off the airplane and, and I, I take a few steps out and there's lines everywhere. Nothing is in English. Everything is in Arabic. <clears throat> Everyone is armed to the teeth. And I walk out and a guy with a machine gun comes up to me, a big hulking guy, machine gun, and a uniform, and begins to scream at me at the top of his lungs in Arabic. And I'm, I'm like, I just got here, and they're gonna, I'm, I'm dead already. Like, I'm, what have I done? I'm going to get arrested. They're going to kill me. I mean, I was as close to being terrified, I think, as I've ever been just with another person like this. He is, I am clearly doing something incredibly wrong. And he is screaming at me at the top of his lungs, and he's pointing, and where he's pointing makes no sense. He's pointing all over the airport and just screaming at me, and I'm just standing there going, like, what what about me not speaking your language is not making sense to you? Like, I have no idea what you're saying, sir. I have no idea what you're saying. I have no idea what you're saying. I mean, and this guy walks up, jumps in between us, and he's got a piece of paper in his hand that has my name on it, and he turns and speaks Arabic to the guy. Turns back to me and asks me for a $5 bill. And I pull out a $5 bill. He hands it to the guy, and the guy's happy. I mean, we're we're like this. He's all happy. And he turns with his $5, walks over, and he was like, you had to pay him a $5 fee. He goes, goes, go ahead and have all the fives you have, like handy, fives and tens, because we've got numerous fees as we go through the airport. And he just walked us, there were lines of people everywhere, and this guy who knew the airport backwards and forwards, this is what he, literally what he does for a living is walk Americans through this airport and, and giving the right people their fees, their $5 fee, their $10 fee, their $5 fee. And we just went around every line, all the things, my passport got stamped, um, all this, I mean, it's just, it was, it was an amazing experience. The, this is the point, though, that I want to make. In that moment of being there as he's screaming at me, in a language I don't understand, and I know something is very, very wrong, and I don't know what's going on, 
And I was, I mean, honestly, guys, I was, I was pretty terrified and going, I have no way to fix this problem. Like, I have no solution. He's not, we're not getting any better. Nothing's, nothing's improving between the two of us as I'm standing here. This is the concept that struck me, that a disembodied hand just showed up in the party of a man who has kind of declared, who's kind of declared himself independent of any God, of the God of the Jews, and he especially, and has decided to dishonor the vessels from the temple in an effort to throw a big party, and a supernatural hand shows up and writes something on the wall, and it probably isn't happy birthday, right? And you got to imagine, he knows I have done something very, very wrong, and I have offended somebody so powerful that a disembodied hand just showed up and wrote something on the wall, and I have no idea what it says. And none of these people around me have any idea what it says. That memory is what came back to me as I was trying to imagine what it felt like to be Belshazzar in this moment. I know this is bad, but I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know who I've offended. I don't understand what's going on. He calls in all of his wise men. They can't tell him anything at all. Can you feel the fear in Belshazzar at this moment? Even just a disembodied hand Right? I mean, we grew up with flannel graphs, so we're kind of like, yeah, I've seen it. We can't, can you actually, though, get your head there? Like all the TV shows that are as scary as they can be about ghost hunting or whatever, and every time they, you know, they never find anything. But season after season, they're still on. Um, imagine if they actually saw one. Like what would be the effect on these people if all of a sudden there's an actual hand? And, it's right, and I can't believe it was fast as it just sits there and writes on the wall the terror levels. Not everything has to have a teachable moment. We're here at the end of the sermon, and I like to have an application, but there's not always a clear application. The application this time as I was looking to this is something pretty simple, and that's, this is what struck me about it. I don't want to overteach this, but I want to ask the question. If we're still in a position, if you're still in a position where you don't know where you stand with God, the fear that you feel about that is very justified. The, feel, the fear that you feel in going, I don't know where I stand with an almighty God. The writer of Hebrews says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And if you don't know where you stand, you don't know, you don't know what you're supposed to be doing here, that's a, that's a scary thought. And I don't want anyone to be stuck there. Again, this isn't the point of this passage. Daniel was not writing this for that application. But as I was looking through and trying to connect my heart to the heart of Belshazzar here to go, what's he experiencing here? That's what stood out to me. I don't want that to be the case for anybody. If anybody doesn't know where they stand with God, we would love to talk with you about that. Any number of people would love to talk with you about that in this church. Most of the people in this church would love to talk with you about that. Um, about how you can know where you stand with this God um, as we continue to learn about that. Anyway, that's just what struck me. The, my, my, I've never identified very well with Belshazzar, but I'm trying to develop that skill more and more and more and realizing he's really afraid right now, and he really has every reason to be afraid right now. And I don't want any of you to be stuck there. So I want to pray for us um, that we could begin to make that connection. Young or old, you've been going to church your whole life, but you don't know where you stand with God. Let's talk about it. It doesn't matter. You can be on staff. You can be a pastor, a deacon, a leadership board member. You can be a Sunday school teacher for years. If you don't know where you stand with God, don't, don't leave it there. Let's talk about it. So if you'd like to come up and pray with us about that, we would love to talk with you about it. 
If you would like to make contact another time for us to talk, that'd be great. If you know someone in your life who you go, they know where they stand with God, and they could talk with, this, with me about that, go to them. Have that conversation. So stand, if you will, and let's, let's pray. And uh, let, me, let me pray over us. Father, I know it is never your intention. It's never your plan for us to not know where we stand with you. Your word makes it clear that, that we are from birth in rebellion against you until we accept the free gift of payment to purchase us out of the hands of our own sin and death and to be adopted by you forever. And it's your heart that everyone would experience that. So Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know where they stand with you, that today would be the day when they, when they settle that. And they know, even sometimes we don't feel it, but we know, we can know that, that um, you have adopted us, you have chosen us, you have purchased us, you have sealed us. You've made us your very own. And that we can find great rest. So I pray that for all of us today. Lord, we're so grateful for you being the kind of God who rescues, who reveals, and who humbles. Lord, we're so grateful, so grateful. Teach us to be humble. Teach us to listen loudly to our brothers and sisters and be teachable, but especially to you. Thank you, Father. We love you and we praise you in your Son's magnificent name and through the sanctifying work of your Spirit and according to your perfect will. Amen.